And tonight, Jeff's going to lead us through four to seven, but let's read from verse one. This is the word of God. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Eodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side and in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. We'll end our reading there at verse 9. We thank God once again for his word. Evening, everyone. Come to Philippians chapter 4. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, then I'd really encourage you to open it up and follow along those verses that Alistair's read for us already. If you're here, maybe you don't have a Bible and you'd like to be able to follow along, then head out into the foyer, turn to your left on a table there, and you will spot some uh, Bibles there, black Bibles, and you can, you can follow along. Before, um, before we pray and ask for God's help, here's what I want you to see this evening. Being in Christ looks different. Being in Christ looks different. Already we've been thinking about those verses from Exodus, about how God saves his people, and then he says to them, this is how you're to live. Well, tonight in Philippians, it's something similar. Being in Christ looks different. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see that for those of us who are in Christ, then how we live looks different. And for those who are here this evening who are outside of Christ, might tonight be the night when you draw them in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to picture the scene, okay? It's, uh, well, you've just been at a church committee meeting on a dark and cold January night, okay? It might not be that hard to imagine. It's one of those nights that were it not for your love for Christ and the love for his church, you would have definitely stayed in the house. One of those evenings. And it's there that it happens. It really wasn't expected. 
Um, the night started off just fine. There were the kind of usual devotions at the start of the, the start of the meeting, and then moved on to, to business. And you were working your way through the agenda. First few points of the agenda were were fine, um, although the, you did kind of sense that there might be a bit of tension that was that was rising. And then you got to item four, and it was at item four that everything blew up. To say that. The meeting got spicy. Would have been too tame a description for what took place. Sharp words were exchanged between the two ladies involved, and for anyone who got caught in the crossfire, well, then they quickly knew that the old saying, "Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt." Those are foolish words, for they are not true. The poor guy chairing that the meeting doesn't know what to do. He just sits dazed and in shock. The minute taker looks over as if to say, "Should I should I write this down and record it, or just just leave it for now?" In the car park after the meeting, those who were injured in the crossfire of the sharp words and the cutting remarks, well, they they seek to patch each other up as best as they can, and everyone heads home. And while in the car, they replay the meeting over and over in their head, thinking. How did that happen? What could I have said differently that might have changed the direction of, of what way things might have went? And how are we ever going to come back together again? Maybe, maybe you think that's not the sort of thing that could happen at a at a church committee meeting, or perhaps you've been on a church committee meeting and that's exactly what happened, and you're starting to wonder whether I've got the minutes and I read the minutes, even the minutes of what was recorded in the car park. Well, Paul's writing to the church, and he's writing to a church where something like this has taken place. Syntyche and Yudia have had this bust up. We're not told the details. I'm not sure if it took part uh, took place in the committee meeting or in the foyer or people watching on. We're really not sure. We're not told about the collateral damage up until this point. Who else might have been hurt? But it needed dealt with. It needed dealt with; otherwise, it was only going to grow and grow, and the unity and the body of the body of the church was going to be compromised. Satan was going to have a foothold that he could seek to cause division. And so, Paul, as he writes to this church, he asks them, he asks them for someone else to to step in and help these two ladies to deal with what has taken place, this disagreement. We'd imagine. That you are part of this church in Philippi. Imagine that the letters arrived. Here we are. We're gathered, and someone is reading out the letter. Imagine we get to this part of the letter, and the name of the two ladies has just been read out, and they're sitting in your pew. <laughs> and you look across, and you see them there. Or imagine for a moment, perhaps worse than that, you realise that your name has just been mentioned. From the front of church, what would you expect Paul to say next? If you were writing this letter to all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, what might be your next direction be to this congregation? What words might you want to to pierce, and what my mind could be a pretty awkward silence? Well, perhaps where Paul goes surprises us. 
Because it's after Paul publicly calls out these two ladies, setting out how to deal with this conflict, that he writes these words. Look with me, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Now, rejoicing is a theme that comes up time and time again within this little book. It's not for the first time that Paul talks about rejoicing, even whenever the external circumstances are not pleasant. I mean, who enjoys it when, when, when two members of the congregation fall out? Well, certainly not me. It's not pleasant for anyone, is it? And yet Paul says, it's still possible to rejoice. It's still possible to rejoice. Earlier in the letter, Paul has been writing about rejoicing, and, and Paul has been writing in prison, talking about being in prison and how he's rejoicing. Paul is still in prison at this point writing and he's saying to them, you can rejoice, you must rejoice. You see, rejoicing doesn't have to be linked to positive outward circumstances. Otherwise, how could Paul write to the Philippians and command them to do that very thing? The circumstances here are the sort of ones that might keep you up at night. Do you know when two people have fallen out, you kind of I can get your head in a whole tizzy, can't it? You can struggle to sleep. You can be tossing and turning. Rejoicing? <laughs> really? How is it possible? How might it be that with the external circumstances, something that is much less than desirable, that you might rejoice? Well, look at the verse with me. For actually, the rejoicing was to be based on the fact that they are in the Lord, in the Lord. That is what is to move them to this point of rejoicing, this assurance that they are in Christ, that they are one of the saints, that they are one of the children of God, that they have had their sins forgiven and that they are safe. They have taken refuge in the Lord, in Christ. And it is being rooted in Christ that allows for this joy. For really being in Christ is the, is the biggest thing. It is the weightiest matter. And so no matter what our outward circumstances, if we are in Christ, well then we have all that we need. And as our minds consider what we have in Christ, it really can lead to joy. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord Always. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul's command is, is not a command that is limited to whenever it takes place. It's not rejoice whenever you get that conflict sorted out in the church congregation. It's not rejoice whenever those relationships are, are restored once again. No, for the Christian, the command is to rejoice, and it's one that always applies we are always to be rejoicing. And just in case we miss it, or we maybe think that Paul um, maybe wasn't concentrating as much as he should have been when he was writing this letter, Paul says it again, doesn't he? Again, I will say, rejoice. He's quite emphatic, isn't he? The Christian's life is to be one that is marked with joy, no matter what the outward circumstances might be. Now, perhaps you're here this evening and well, maybe you aren't like the two ladies who have fallen out in the letter. 
Maybe you haven't been caught up in the crossfire of two people falling out in the foyer or a committee meeting or in the car park or wherever it might be. I'm actually really hoping that that is not the case. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Although I think we would be naive if we think that this isn't the sort of thing that happens in Bible teaching churches, because this is what happens in Philippi, which is just that, a Bible teaching church. But perhaps there's not a warring fraction within the church that you're aware of. But I wonder, I wonder, is there other circumstances where we struggle to continue to think that we're able to rejoice? When a health prognosis is not good, when a relationship has failed, when the job that you really wanted was given to someone else, when the business venture didn't take off in the way that you'd hoped that it would, when the choices that your children are making are causing great heartache, when someone has broken your trust, when you've got scammed and you realize that someone lied to you on the phone and now your bank account is empty, when you're grieving the loss of of someone who is really close to you, could, could you possibly rejoice then? Can you, can you imagine rejoicing at that point? I wonder, are you rejoicing this evening? Well, not, not if joy is based purely on the, the circumstances around you, but only if your joy is found in Christ, because Christ does not change. He does not change. It's only then that you can continue to rejoice. Paul says, the reason for rejoicing is not our outward circumstances, but rather our identity and how our identity is found hidden in Christ. And so for those who are believers here this evening, if you're a Christian here this evening, then hear this command. Hear this command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You see, being in Christ looks different. Being in Christ looks different. And Christ says to us this evening, rejoice. Now, the next thing that uh, Paul writes at this stage is verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I want you to think for a moment about the context. Remember what's just happened? Paul has been addressing some conflict between two members of the church. And if you remember last week, if you were here, Alistair was suggesting that often, in cases like this, it can grow to not just a disagreement between two individuals, but it becomes two individuals' families, and then there are friendship groups. And before you know it, it's kind of engulfed the whole church, and you've kind of got this side against that side, two entrenched camps, and neither willing to move. Now, This word translated here is uh, reasonable in the ESV, or it's gentleness in the NIV, uh, two different translations there, but basically saying the same thing, and it kind of carries with it this idea of having a a, a generous spirit, a generous spirit, one where you would rise above being offended by others' offenses. It's one of kindness and patience towards one another. This love that you have for your brothers and sisters really does cover a whole multitude of sins. And look at, look at who Paul says it's to be shown to you. I wonder, do you spot that? 
Is it just those who are on your side of the argument? You know, when the church divides into you, is it just those who sit on your side, either left or right? Is that who? Is it just those who are on Uriah's side or those who are on Syndicate's side or whoever, whoever you're with, is that who you are to be reasonable to? No, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Everyone. Doesn't it seem that often when a, a disagreement starts to fester, that reasonableness is often one of the very first things to disappear. <laughs> that any kind of rationality or perspective, any kind of, of generous spirit towards one another, well, that disappears very quick and is abandoned. And notice that first Paul commands joy and then appeals for them to be reasonable. It's as if Paul sees the link between the two. For when you find joy in the Lord, surely it gives us perspective, it gives us clarity as to how we really are to be living as one of God's people. We are in Christ. And we are therefore to live Christ-like lives. And that means the fruit of the Spirit should be evident within our lives, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, being in Christ looks different. And so this verse leads me to to ask you the question. Within the church body, how are you known? Within the church body, how am I known? Is it joyful? Reasonable? Am I someone who is gentle and and kind? Someone who rises above offenses? Is, is my life marked with much good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit? Is that what you see as you look at me? Is that what I see as I look at you? And am I seeking to show that to everyone in the church? Everyone in the church? Or, or is it that I'm only happy to give that, you know, the, the good fruit side? Is that only allowed to be seen by a selected group within the church? Maybe those who are particularly like me, whatever that might be. Or, or am I happy to show that to everyone within the church family? I wonder who you're going to speak to after, after church this evening. Are you just going to go to those whom, whom you know, those whom you trust, those whom, you know, you're quite happy spending time with them? Are you happy to show that fruit to, to everyone within the body here? See, being in Christ looks different. When we're in Christ, we look different. And it's being in Christ that enables us to live out this different looking life. The third thing that Paul says to this church family in Philippi is that he reminds them that the Lord is at hand. And that shapes, again, how we're going to live. Now, what does he mean whenever he says the Lord is at hand? There's a couple of possibilities that he may have in mind. Two things he could be meaning. Uh, Paul could be referring to the fact that uh, we're to expect Christ Jesus to return uh, could be the case. It's only a few verses earlier that Paul has been talking about that. See that in verse uh, 3, 320, chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So ever since uh, Pentecost, the next big event that God's people were waiting for was uh, in the salvation story, Jesus to return and to judge the living and the dead. Ever since Pentecost, we've been living in these last days. And we don't know when Jesus is going to return. We're not sure. But we know he is going to return. And he is going to come like a thief in the night. And so is it that Paul is reminding those that he's writing to, you know, Jesus is going to return. What are you going to be doing whenever he returns? Or is it that Paul really has in mind this idea that Jesus is actually with his people all of the time? He's with his people all of the time. He really is everywhere. And that means he really is here. He is the good shepherd who walks along with his sheep, even, even in the valley. We really are in Christ. And so because we're in Christ, we can turn to Christ and speak to him. We can bring all of our concerns to Christ. We have this relationship with him. You can talk to Jesus. You can cry out to Jesus. Or could it be that Paul has both in mind? And that's why he doesn't make it even clearer as to which he's talking about. My hunch is that both are really, really helpful here. And it's with this reminder that the Lord is at hand that leads Paul to verse 6. Look with me there at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's verse 6, right? Maybe one that's quite well known, but notice that it is connected In fact, it's the same sentence as verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, knowing that the Lord is at hand, Paul goes on to command us, do not be anxious. Now, if you are anxious, if you're anxious, if you're kind of all over the place, perhaps you think that someone telling you not to be anxious isn't overly helpful. Okay, it might seem unhelpful. As if it was as easy as that, you know, don't be anxious. Oh, okay then, I'll stop being anxious. But actually Paul knows that some anxiety is because of a lack of faith, a lack of trust that the Lord really is at hand, that the Lord really is with you, that the Lord really is there for you to call out to and to bring your prayers and your requests to him. Sometimes, Sometimes, not always, but sometimes our anxiety is because we live forgetting, forgetting that we are in Christ. And sometimes our anxiety is because we forget that Jesus really is going to return someday, and he really is going to judge the living and the dead, and he really is going to make all the wrong things right. And those truths are are truths which should settle our minds. There really is nothing too big or too small that a believer should be anxious about whenever those truths about being in Christ fill our minds. And so they, they settle how we think about things. Those truths, they settle our anxious hearts. And so we're not to be anxious, remembering that the Lord is at hand, but rather we are, turn to, we are to turn to that Lord and we're to turn to him in prayer but in everything. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
But what are we to pray about? Do you spot that? Everything. Everything. We're to bring every single thing to God in prayer. And that's a pretty comprehensive word, isn't it? There's nothing that you cannot bring to God in prayer. Everything is to be brought to him in prayer. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too big. You can bring your concerns about work, about your children, about the wars in the furthest most parts of the world. You can bring your health concerns. You can bring your cost of living concerns. You can bring your ongoing struggles with sin. You can bring them all. We're to bring everything to God in prayer. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And notice, notice that part of our prayers should be thanksgiving. You spot that? Thanking God for the, his mercy towards us. Thanking God for previously heard and answered prayer. Thanking God for his goodness towards us. But notice also that we are to come with our requests, right? We are to come with our requests. We have a heavenly father who loves us and cares for us, and he knows our needs, but, but he also wants us to come and to bring them to him. Think of a, a father who knows the needs of his children. He can see their needs, can't he? He looks and he can see their needs. He might look and, and see, okay, right? You've got a hole in your shoes. You need new shoes. But what does he want? He wants his son or his daughter to come and say to him, Dad, I, I, I love you. I know that you provide for me. I, I, I've actually got a hole in my shoes. I need new shoes. And then what does the father want to do? He wants to go and, and, and get the shoes for his son or his daughter who has a hole in their shoes. Now, could it be that the father just sees the hole in the shoes, goes to the shoe shop, gets the shoes, puts them in the wardrobe, closes the door? Yeah, that, that could happen. But there's something about the relationship, isn't there? Where the father wants his children to come and to speak to him and say, this is what I need. This is what I long for. This is the desires I have. And leaves them with the father. There's something about that that when the father answers the prayer and the shoes are there, that the child really does know, yes, I have a heavenly father who who loves me, who cares for me. And they see that even maybe more up close. And it draws them into a closer relationship with their Heavenly Father. You see, being in Christ looks different. Rather than having anxious hearts, we're supposed to bring all of our concerns and just lay them before our Heavenly Father and say, right, I've I've told you everything that's going on in my heart and I'm going to entrust it to you. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're good. I know that you care for me. We were thinking about that this morning. And so I'm going to trust you. Rather than me being anxious, trying to you know, work it all out myself, I'm going to trust that you have control and that you care for me. Being in Christ looks different. Lastly, uh, Paul wants to show us that if we do these things, then there is a promise that comes along with it. I want you to spot that in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing to this group of believers, to brothers and sisters who are in the Lord. And what Paul has just told them to do is to live out a spirit 
filled and fruitful life. That's basically what he's been saying. A life that is seeking to see the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in their lives, in their, in their daily lives. And as they do this, remembering who they are in Christ, remembering the reality that the, the Lord will indeed hear their prayers, they will know the peace of God. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about peace here? Um, Alec Matier says that uh, detached from the New Testament, the word peace is a sort of spiritual marshmallow, full of softness and sweetness, but without much actual substance. We kind of get that, don't we? You know, we can kind of um, have those conversations about, you know, I really felt a peace, and it can kind of sound warm and fuzzy, especially if it's detached from from someone actually being a Christian, you know? You're talking to someone who's not a Christian and they say, well, something like this, well, I had this, real, I had this real peace from God as I carried out the robbery. I just knew that it was what God wanted me to do. You know, as, you know, as an extreme example, I'll give it that, okay. But that's not really what it's talking about here, is it? It's not really the sort of peace that Paul's talking about. Alec Mentir, I think, really helpfully says that the God of peace is the God who makes peace between himself and sinners. And that this peace is linked with God's salvation work. You see, the peace of God is only ever known in the heart of a believer. The peace of God is only ever known in the heart of a believer. For we only know that the peace of God whenever we are no longer enemies with God. And as we live out of the knowledge that we are in Christ, that we've taken refuge in Jesus, that our sins have been forgiven, then the assurance of, of that reality brings joy to our hearts and confidence to approach the throne of heaven with our prayers. But as the, this peace with God is, is lived out, there, there is a sense in which there really is this transcending peace. Transcending peace, a, a settling of the anxious heart within the life of a believer that Really, if you were to look at their outward experience and their circumstances, there is no natural reason, no natural reason for such a peace, the kind of peace that they're experiencing. And so isn't that why Paul is able to write this? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, often uh, talking to believers, talking to Christians, perhaps um, uh, awaiting surgery or maybe uh, awaiting results, uh, and, and this is the kind of thing that they speak of, this peace that God has given them. They've brought everything to God. They've, they've brought all the concerns. They haven't been hiding them. They've brought them all to God. They've laid them all out before God. And they have really experienced this peace, this, this level of, I'm going to trust God. And so as others look on, it looks strange, it looks bizarre. To, to non-Christians, as they look on, they say, what's going on here? How is it that there's this level of, of peace in this person's life? It doesn't make sense. It surpasses our, our ordinary understanding. And yet, where does it come from? comes from God, isn't it? As he settles our hearts and 
we really trust in him. See, being in Christ looks different. This week, I've spent some time in in Psalm 31, and really, it's felt like a model prayer, a model prayer that fits with Philippians 4. Everything that's listed in Philippians 4, you find in, in Psalm 31. Maybe it's one that you can use as your Psalm for bedtime this evening whenever you go home. Maybe sit beside the fire, get yourself a wee cup of tea, read through Psalm 31 and think about Philippians, what we'll be looking at tonight and how it really does link. It's a Psalm of David. It's, it's one that is a prayer in which we see David recognize his identity as one of God's people. Starts off, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge? It goes on, for you are my rock and my fortress. So he recognizes that he's one of God's people. But it's also a psalm where David lays bare his heart. He really does that. He asks God to hear him. He cries out for God to rescue him from his enemies. He says, incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. And as he prays, he jumps between thanksgiving and laying out his requests. One moment, he, he thanks God for his love that he has shown him, and the next, he's, he's crying out and asking for rescue. One moment, he says, but I trust in you, Lord. My times are in your hands. And the next moment, he's speaking of his alarm. You could say his anxious heart and how he felt hidden from God as if God did not see him. And as he brings his prayer to an end, this is how he finishes. He says, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You see, part of the the lived reality for the believer is that as we know and reflect on the peace with God that we have, as a result of being in Christ, And as we live our lives walking closely with our Lord and bringing everything to him in prayer, then then peace lived out is is actually what we experience. This kind of settled heart whose trust in God is, is actually visible to others as they watch on. You see, being in Christ, being in Christ looks different. And so let me ask you the question this evening. Do you know this kind of peace? Do you know what it is to have the peace of God this evening? A settled heart that knows peace with God, forgiveness of sin, and knows that they really can trust this same God with all that is happening in the world and in their own lives. A heart that is put at ease knowing that they have brought everything to their heavenly Father, their heavenly Father who is good, who is sovereign, and who really does care for them. Like David does in Psalm 31, they can say, my times are in your hand. Yes, disaster may come, it may come, but you can know the peace of God that really does surpass all our understanding. You see, God knows what he's doing. And so you can put your trust in him. But this type of peace, this type of peace that we're talking about tonight, can only be found in Christ. And so, let me ask you, is that where you are this evening?
Are you in Christ? Have you called out to Christ and said, I need to find rescue. I need to find refuge in you. For that is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words in Philippians. We thank you for the reminder that for those of us who are in Christ, our lives are to look different. We can rejoice despite our external circumstances because we know that we have forgiveness of sin, that we have this intimate relationship with Jesus, that we have found refuge in him. We can be reasonable, recognizing how gracious and merciful you have been to us. We can be reasonable with others. We're reminded that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. One day he is coming back. We don't know when that is. But he's also everywhere. He is here with us. And so we can talk to our Lord. And so, Lord, help us not to be anxious, but rather to come and to pray about everything. And Lord, we thank you that as we do that, we can know peace. Peace that really does surpass understanding. Peace that as the world looks on, they do not understand, and yet we know that it is peace that comes from you. Lord, these are some of the benefits of being in Christ. And so, Lord, might there be no one who leaves this evening who is not in Christ and knowing all of the benefits that come with that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.